0: Dave and Donna Allen with us. Uh, Dave Allen is the executive director uh, of the Bible Fellowship Church, our, our denomination, uh, which basically means uh, he's the one that we have tasked uh, to execute, uh, whatever purposes, vision uh, we feel God has for the denomination, uh, as set out by the BFC Conference or the BFC Executive Board. Uh, and so we just thought it'd be great to have him come sometime this summer, you know, over COVID and then after COVID, there's a lot of folks who are relatively new to us, maybe don't even know that we're a part of a fellowship of churches or what this fellowship of churches is. Uh, so we thought it'd be great to have Dave come sometime this summer. Uh, I'll also just say real quickly, I, I think it, uh, th- this comes at a good time during our summer series, right? Because last week during the sermon, we were talking about... You know, the difficulties as we're asking tough questions. We're talking about difficult. What about all the abuses of power, not only in the cultural institutions, but sometimes in the church? You know, we talk through that. You know, one of the ways we really try to safeguard any kind of abuse of power or any kind of sense that we are not exercising authority or leadership in the manner of Christ is by being accountable. Um, so we have multiple layers of accountability, whether it's in our local church here or whether it's, you know, me in relationship with a lot of the other pastors in this community, or uh, being a part of a denomination, Uh, being a part of a denomination where we, um, you know, we pray for one another, where we encourage one another, uh, where we discern together God's purposes for us as a church and as a denomination, where we are uh, united in a shared uh, confession of an article to faith and um, our our faith in order, if you will. Uh, so we really just think it's a good thing uh, not to just be out there on our own, uh, but to be accountable and to be in mutual uh, fellowship and accountability with other churches. And uh, yeah, so that's part of us as a denomination. I'll let David come and share. I wasn't going to call him a suit this morning, but he's literally the only guy here in, in the suit. Um, so, and he's the one, right? Uh, some of you... As we've gone through our membership classes or as you've gotten to know us, you've asked me sometimes some difficult questions, and I've ducked those questions by just saying, yeah, that's the denominational stuff. So he's the guy that now you can come and answer ask those questions to. So. Well, thank you for allowing me to come and uh, take four
1: minutes and give an overview of the Bible Fellowship Church denomination. We're an expanding fellowship of churches united together to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And each one of our churches is locally autonomous, but not independent. And so we belong to one another, as your pastor has said. So we unite in worship in that there are about 10,000 of us on any given weekend who are worshiping our Lord in 74 different locations. Uh, We have churches in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Maryland, Florida, New Mexico, and now we have three in Mexico itself. Uh, through our Board of Missions, uh, we support more than 125 missionaries around the world and just recently have sent over $140,000 to our missionaries in Romania to help out with the Ukraine crisis. Uh, through our church extension ministries, we're currently in the process of planning new churches in areas where the gospel needs to be preached. We have a children's and youth camp called Victory Valley where we meet to reach over 1,000 children each Uh, week with the gospel. The Pinebrook Educational Foundation provides scholarships for students from Bible Fellowship churches who are going to college and seminary, and that includes any of your students, too, who would make an application for that. Our Board of Church Health works with our churches to make sure that they're spiritually healthy and effectively spreading the gospel in their communities. Our Youth and Young Adults Committee provides activities and retreats for young people with an annual retreat called Snowglow in the Wintertime, where you've sent teams in the past. The BFC Life Committee uh, facilitates a summer Bible conference for three weeks in the month of July at Pinebrook Bible Conference starting next week. We have a seniors' retreat in the fall and a ladies' retreat in the spring. And as your pastor mentioned about accountability, uh, we work together in the raising the level of our elders by providing biblical training and education, our pastors are vetted by our ministerial candidate committee before being called to one of our churches. They are credentialed for a ministerial credentials committee and annually must maintain their credentials so they don't go astray. We keep them in line, so to speak. Uh, we try. We, re- we publish a quarterly magazine called One Voice. We have a constant presence on social media. We print brochures and we provide church resources on our website. site. I brought some stuff uh, for you in the back. We have uh, some brochures introducing the Bible Fellowship Church. What is membership? Are we reformed? What is salvation? And then eschatology, what we believe concerning the last days. So my job as executive director of Bible Fellowship Church is to make sure that everything happens and also that we stay on course and, of course, the last thing that's in every job description, which says, and anything else that needs to be done. So that's my job. Now, we've been at this since 1858, so we're not newcomers on the block, but you here at Grace Bible Fellowship Church in Wallingford are coming up to your 100th anniversary because it was in 1926 that the Gospel Heralds, which was our church planning group of men back in the days, developed you into what you are today by holding tent meetings in Chester, And that developed into a church. In fact, this very church facility, the sanctuary, was built in 1963 when my stepfather, uh, the Reverend Jack Regal, was your pastor. So I have vested interest in uh, your well-being and your success as a Bible Fellowship Church. So keep up the good work. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you this morning. And may God continue to bless you as you are a gospel witness in this part of Chester County. Blessings to you. So why is it that Chester is in Delaware County and not in Chester County? How how does that make sense to anybody? When our forefathers penned these words, they believed that every person has certain inalienable rights, and that is rights that that cannot be surrendered, transferred, or given to another person or an entity. And among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what the framers didn't do is they didn't define for us those terms. And so as a nation, we're still trying to figure out uh, exactly when does life begin and who has permission to end it. What exactly is liberty? That cost us a major war 160 years ago. And what is happiness and what does it mean to pursue happiness? Now, I'm not going to discuss the first two issues, but the Bible does define for us very clearly what happiness is, and how to pursue it. Pastor and author John Piper wrote a book entitled Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, in which he posited that pursuing happiness was not only permissible within a Christian's life, but was necessary, um, and the pursuit of it gives glory to God. Now, John Piper's, whose father was named after one of our Bible Fellowship Church pastors, William Solomon Hoddle Piper, known in our archives as W.S. Hoddle, he noted that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, uh, drawn up in 1646, it says that the chief end of man is to bring glory to God and or by enjoying him forever. So enjoying God pleases God while at the same time making us happy. So who doesn't want to be happy? We all do. But the question that comes, well, where do we find happiness? Now, you might suggest that happiness can be found in having lots of money, possessing things, pleasing ourselves with all the luxuries that our uh, society offers. But they don't really make you happy. And yet there are cultural groups not too far from here, but not in Delaware or Chester County, uh, but who are like, like the Amish, who intentionally have very little that society offers, uh, and yet they seem to be happy not having these things. No electricity, no cars, no TV, no air conditioning. How many of you would live without those things? How many of you could live without your cell phone or being able to attach to social media? And I'm not suggesting that we give up the benefits of our technological age. But the Bible does warn us not to be enamored by those things or to be enamored by the people who espouse those things, which inevitably influence us because neither lead us to happiness. So then you could say or ask the question, well, what does the Bible say that leads to happiness? Well, I'm glad you asked. So turn with me in your Bibles to the very first Psalm, Psalm 1. And I'm sure that you have read this psalm many, many times, but I'd like to look at it from the perspective of who or what influences you and what makes you happy. Shouldn't we as Christians be the happiest people on the face of the earth since we're the most blessed people on the face of the earth? Well, if so, upon what is our happiness based? Is it based on our circumstances? Is it based on our feelings? Is it based on how others treat us? Or is it based on God and his word? Well, happiness comes when we are content and delighted with someone or something that we can trust. Happiness is an emotion and it comes from our heart, from which is our foundation of life, our core beliefs, our faith. And if our happiness has, if our hearts have a solid foundation based on objective truth, happiness will flow out from it. And our attitudes and our actions will reflect that contentment. When, however, our hearts are not rooted in the truth, then happiness is fleeting at best and often just a facade that people put on to make you think that they're happy. This morning, I want to draw your attention to the very first word of this psalm, which is the word happy or blessed, depending upon the person who translated the psalm from the Hebrew into English. Being happy and being blessed are very close, but I think that there's a difference. I think that I can make myself happy, but I know I can't bless myself. Only a person who is greater than yourself can bless you. Happy is how I feel, but blessed is how I am. And it's a result of someone else's actions. So it's appropriate for us to say that God blesses us in all sorts of ways, and that should make us feel very happy. We can call him blessed because he's the source of all of our blessings. And we ask him to bless us our food, and that's why we ask the blessing before we sit down and we eat. So I'm not sure which is the best word to use here uh, as we begin this psalm, because whether you are happy or you're blessed, you end up with a person who is happy because they are blessed. So we're going to flop them back and forth. But let me read the psalm to you. The psalmist writes... Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this is poetry. And poems draw pictures in our minds. So let's try to unpack what the author of this psalm is trying to tell us and what God wants us to learn from it. Let's first notice that happiness comes from a life which is founded on the word of God. The psalm beca- uh, begins by declaring that there is a blessed or a happy person. But who is this blessed, this happy person? Well, this person is one who does not do something, but does do something else. The happy person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. A truly happy, blessed person does not go there. The psalmist in poetic form wants you to know that you can have a happy, blessed life, and he begins with a contrast of various kinds of people. And here we have three groups of three descriptions that are in descending order. First, walk, stand, and sit. Second, walk in the council, stand in the way, sit in the seat. And then third, walk in the council of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. Now we can pretty well understand the postures that are mentioned uh, as the person, uh, as we look at the first triad: walking, standing, and sitting. All three of those relate to our positioning, our relationship with people who influence us. And the order seems to indicate a movement of involvement from casual to serious with the people who are wicked sinners and scoffers. So here's the warning: the closer you get, the more you listen to people who you allow to influence you, the more you will begin to think like them, you will begin to act like them, and you will begin to come, become like them. And then you won't be happy. The counsel or the advice of the people that was mentioned in the third group, the direction of their lives, their way, the positions they hold too firmly, that they're not going to move from. We are warned that they are not to influence our lives because a righteous person does not follow in the footsteps or stand around with them as they do the things which they espouse in order to make themselves happy or content. Then we have this list of people who are a blessed, happy person who does not have them influence their life. And the Hebrew word that's rendered wicked is a generic term for all types of people who do wrong things. It's translated ungodly several times, and it's used three times in this little psalm. Sinners, we all know, are those who miss God's mark in life. They fall short of God's glory and God's standard. Sinners is what we all were before we gave our hearts and lives over to Jesus Christ. And a scoffer is one who mocks at people, who lives righteously, uh, who lives a godly life. Now, we can see scoffers in the media, in movies, in the popular music that permeates our airwaves. Christianity and Christians today are mocked at, ridiculed, and declared to be irrelevant, unintelligent, and now we're even called radical. So, if the blessed, happy person does not hang with that group of people and do what they do, what does a happy, blessed person do? Well, look at verse 2. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So instead of finding happiness in the words or the ways or the fellowship of the wicked, the one who is truly happy finds pleasure in meditating and thinking about the word and the ways of God. Now, the word law in our text is Torah. It is all of the Bible that the psalmist had to give to them instruction about how to live. It was God's words about God's ways. It still is. Now, the point of the psalm is to say, that when you experience the word of God so delightful and so satisfying that it captures your mind and your heart both day and night, and it weans you away from the counsel and the way and the seat of the world, when you experience the word of God like that, you are blessed, you will be blessed, and you will be happy. That then is the key to the pursuit of happiness, a life which is founded on the word of God. But now having broad-brushed these first two verses, some question comes to my mind. Why did the psalmist begin, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers? Why didn't he just come right out and say it? Why didn't he just say, look, don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff? Why did he draw attention to the people who are wicked, who are sinners, and who are scoffers? Why did he focus on where we look for influence? For essentially he's saying, don't be influenced by the wicked, Don't be influenced by the sinner, and don't be influenced by the scoffer. Why does the psalmist begin the way he does? Well, one reason is that the contrast that he wants to draw is not wickedness versus righteousness. The contrast he wants to draw is our being influenced from one place versus being influenced from another place. Being shaped in one way versus being shaped in another way. Being shaped in our thinking and our feelings by the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer versus being shaped in our thinking by the law of the word of God. So he sets up verse 1 the way he does in order to prepare for the contrast in verse 2. Because in verse 1 he's saying, don't give your attention to the ways of the world through the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer so that you start to delight in their ways. But instead, verse 2 he notes, his delight should be in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the way of sinners out of duty. Nobody sits in the seats of scoffers out of duty. We walk and we stand and we sit there because we want to. And we want to because we've been watching them so intently that what they do is now attractive to us. We've meditated on them without even calling it that, and we delight in that. And that's how worldliness happens. You start by looking at the stuff that the world produces and possesses. You look at it and you think about it so much that you want it. And so you walk and stand and sit in their council. You follow their ways and you end up in their seats. And that's a problem with their influence. We almost can't get away from it because it's all around us. The billboards, the advertisements, the commercials, the robocalls, the emails from unwanted sources all try to influence our lives to think the way that the marketers want us to think, to buy, and to do. It's not just stuff. It's also sociological and it's political. Because the more they can influence us, hoping that we will think the way they do, the more they can control us as they fill our minds with their thoughts and their agendas. And that's why the contrast in verse 2 refers not to duty and obedience, but to delight and to meditation. Verse 2 says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Someone said that the only hope against the pleasures of the world is the pleasures of the word. And just like the pleasures of the world are awakened by looking at them long enough, so the pleasures of the word... Are awakened in us by the unregenerate soul by thinking about them day and night so the psalmist says if you consistently meditate on the instruction of god if the word of god informs your thinking your happiness will be found in him your delight will be awakened in you you'll begin to see the big picture of life and you'll begin to see it through god's eyes so meditating on the word of god leads to delighting which flees us from the pleasures of the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. And the psalmist says that when the word of God begins to infiltrate your mind, it's going to shape your thinking to closer align with God's way of thinking, and your heart is going to be tuned to him. And you'll begin to delight in what God has done, is doing, and will do in and through you. Psalm 37, verse 4. The psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When your desires along with God's and your heart is tuned to him, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, it's not stuff that he's referring to as the desires of your heart, but the important things that are valued in life. Because when your desires align with God's, you will be happy and content in one you can trust. So the psalmist then gives us an illustration of what all this means. And he provides for us a picture of what a life of a happy, blessed person looks like. And it's a picture that each of us can draw in our own mind because it is a life that is like a tree. And that takes us to verse 3, where we ask, what's up with the tree analogy? Why doesn't verse 3 just say, when you meditate on God's word and delight in what you see, you will not act wickedly, you will not act sinfully, and you will not scoff? Why did he do that? That would have rounded things out very, very nicely as in verse one, wouldn't it? Now, I've thought about this a lot lately and here's what I've come up with. The truth is, and I'm sorry to say this, pastor, but we don't remember most of what we heard and what we hear. In fact, think of all the sermons that you've heard in your life. How many of those sermons do you remember? Three? We do remember more of what we see And we all know what a tree looks like, I think. And so in this case, a picture is worth a thousand words. So the answer is that the psalmist wants us to see that the life of a godly person is like a tree that's bearing fruit. It's not like a person who's picking the fruit off the tree. It's not the actions that make us godly. It's what flows from the heart that causes us to live godly lives. So look at verse 3. It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. So here's this picture of the Christian life. There's streams of water around. There's a life of God flowing through the word of God. And you're like a tree planted there by God's sovereign grace. Your roots reach the water of life that makes your leaves green even during the drought that makes you fruitful even when everybody else in the world is dry and barren. Actually, a tree is a pretty good way that we process life. It's a good illustrate analogy of it. The leaves and the fruit are parts of, the peop- of our lives that people see. They're the actions that we do. These actions, however, come from our attitudes that have been developed over the years. And the foundation of our attitudes are our beliefs. When those beliefs are influenced and informed by the world, then by ungodly thoughts, by sin, by fear, by doubt. There's no root system to serve as a foundation for their lives. On the other hand, when our lives are founded on the word of God, the promises contained therein, the recognition of God's sovereignty over all aspects of our lives, then our hearts, our souls have a foundation that cannot be taken away. It is deep and it is wide. It anchors our souls. And flowing up from the root system uh, is, uh, of a tree is sap that takes the water and minerals from the roots and gives it to the tree, sustaining its life. The sap gives life. Now, in the spiritual realm, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us spiritual life and who's willing and able to give sustenance to our lives. Stop the Spirit's ability to fill your life, and you will wither up and die. The Apostle Paul warned, he said, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit he got it. So in the picture of the tree that the psalmist is painting, reading and meditating on God's word is the way that the roots touch the water. And the result is delight. It's a spiritual pleasure in what we see of God and man in life. And from this delight comes all sort of changed attitudes and behaviors, and it adds stability to your life so that you are complete and you are prosperous in God's eyes. Now, the way that you avoid the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinner and the seed of the scoffer is not by working hard at being righteous or being spiritual, but it's won by happiness. It's won by delight. And that delight is nourished through meditating upon God's instruction day and night. And that delight results in our happiness. So in verse 3, the psalmist draws a picture of a tree. He relates it to a person who exhibits the foundation of a blessed life. His picture shows us that a person who delights in the word of God and meditates on it will always be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither and who will prosper in all that he does. So let's look at each one of those for just a second and see how a tree illustrates a blessed or a happy life. First of all, your source of strength is the word of God. If you delight in the word of God, And if it informs your thoughts day and night, you're going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. That doesn't really sound significant to those of us in this part of the world in Delaware County, uh, because we have plenty of water to nourish our trees. But not so where the psalmist lived. He lived in Israel on the edge of a desert desert. And when David lived in Judea, he lived on such of the edge of a Judean desert that is bleak and barren. It extends down to the lowest spot on the face of the earth, which is where the Dead Sea is. Where there is no shade, there is no trees, there is no shade, there's no moisture, there's no life. But if you can find a spring or a stream of water, you'll find trees. Strong trees. And it is just to this condition that the psalmist is referring I have to spell this out for you. You spiritually grow when God's word forms the foundation of your life. When what God has to say invades your mind and you think about it, God speaks to you and you become strong in your faith and your relationship with God and his son, Jesus Christ. It's like listening to Christian music or the hymns that we've been singing and songs that we sing at a worship service. When you find yourself singing the song, other thoughts flee. When you find yourself content, you find happiness in the God's truth. It's just like when you see the sky ablaze with uh, colors. Doesn't Psalm 19.1 come to your mind? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Doesn't that happen come into your head? And when you're going through a dark time and despair is all around you, doesn't Psalm 23 come to you to your thinking? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Doesn't that bring you comfort and consolation? Well, how do you know those things? Well, you read it in the Bible and you think about it and it fills your mind and you grow in your spiritual life like a tree that's planted by stream of water. You are stable, you are nurtured, you are well-fed and your strength to live comes from the word of God. And secondly, Your attitudes and your actions reflect your heart. If you delight in the word of God and it's your foundation, you're going to yield fruit in season. In other words, you'll be a fruitful person. Well, what does a fruitful person look like? I'm glad you asked. The apostle Paul gave clarity clarity to it by declaring that the fruits of the spirit are, and you all know these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-controlled. Oh, for more fruitful people. You know who they are. They're refreshing. They're nourishing to be around. They're consistent in their lives. You go away from them encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Their actions and their attitudes are based upon their beliefs rooted deep in the word of God. And you find that they delight in the word of God. They spend time reading it day and night. And when you do the same, you're going to yield fruit in season and out of season. But thirdly, he says, Your trust in God enables you to weather life's storms. So if you delight in the Word of God and it's changed your heart, your leaf does not wither. And the point here is that there may be times in your life, it was mentioned this morning, when the hot winds blow, there seems to be no nourishing rain falling, and all the other trees that are planted by streams are withering and dying, like during the pandemic that we all had to endure. But in spite of the heat and the drought, your leaf remains green because delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night is like being planted by a stream. So your blessedness and your happiness are deeply rooted and you realize that regardless of the circumstances, you really are better than you deserve to be. So it does not depend on which way the wind is blowing or whether the rain is falling. You get your life from an absolutely changeless source. God as revealed in his eternal word. And then fourthly, it says that your prosperity comes from God. But that now leads us to the question raised by the final illustration of blessing and happiness in verse three, where it says, and whatever he does, he prospers. Oh, really? What does this mean? Does it mean that if you delight in the word of God and you meditate upon it long enough, your business will make a big profit, your health will always be good, there'll be no food shortages or car accidents or violence against your house? Uh, there's some reason to believe that such a person will have some of those blessings. But uh, when you're delighting in God's word, when you're trusting as a foundation for your life, we know that God works for those who trust him and, uh, and who wait for him. But God doesn't always spare his faithful people from difficult times. There's plenty of scriptures that tell us that many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen. 19. Look, life happens. Uh, life doesn't always seem fair. In fact, sometimes life is just plain old hard. Loved ones get cancer. Accidents happen. COVID-19 sneaks up on you. Death occurs. These times are hard to handle. And as Christians, we're not immune to suffering. It happens and it's often out of our control. But it's not out of God's knowing. When James, the brother of Jesus, told us to count it all joy when you have trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness when it is finished will be complete and you will be lacking in nothing. James 1 verses 2 to 4. It seems to me that lacking in nothing is pretty close to what the psalmist calls prospering. You're not lacking anything. It's the Holy Spirit within you. It's the sap within the tree analogy who helps you through those difficult times. And therefore, you're able to handle it. So, a tree really is a pretty good picture of our lives. But if it is, let me ask you a question. What kind of tree describes you? Are you a strong tree? It's a little skinny, little sapling thing. A happy, blessed life is founded on the word of God. A happy, blessed life is as stable as a tree and a life founded on the word of God is aware of influences. The second half of this Psalm sort of repeats what the Psalm is described in the first half. It paints a picture of an unrighteous person and then briefly contrasts the lifestyle of a righteous one. Verse four says, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff, which the wind drives away. So, Everything that the psalmist said about a righteous person being like a tree is untrue of a wicked person. Uh, The Hebrew is really interesting here because it really says, not so, the wicked. And wicked is the same word as in verse 1 where he warns that their counsel is bad and should be avoided. And it's the same word that's used at the end of verse 6 which declares that they're all going to perish. These people are all about themselves. They think they don't need God in their lives. They have no problem looking down on me or you for relying on God. I think they're self-deluded. I actually question their mental stability because in Psalm 14, the psalmist writes, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have committed indomitable b- deeds. There is no one who does good. So in describing the wicked, the ungodly, the psalmist gives us a metaphor of chaff and wheat, which is so familiar that it doesn't need explaining. He says, not so the wicked, because they're like chaff that the wind blows away. So, compare the trunk of a redwood tree or a big oak tree to a stalk of wheat. Uh, The stuff of a tree is not going to go away very easily, but a stalk of wheat is just going to blow away in the wind and it's gone. In fact, the wicked person's deeds are going to evaporate. They have absolutely no lasting value in God's economy, both now and for eternity. Notice how verse 5 begins it says, Therefore, So having given us a comparative picture of trees versus stalk of wheat, the psalmist gives clarity to the point that he's been making. He says the wicked are not going to stand. The word stand is not the same word as in verse 1 that says that happy is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. It's more of a legal word. Like when we say that a person has no standing in court of law. He has no right to be there. He has no standing on the case. Those who are not righteous... Those who are ungodly, those who are wicked, have no standing before God and ultimately will have to spend eternity in the place of punishment because they have no right to be in God's presence. Believe me, they won't be happy. Now, in addition to that, because there's no definite article in in front of the word judgment, it could be translated as just judgment. So the phrase stands in judgment means the way the unbeliever handles crises and testings of life. They actually don't have the moral strength uh, to cope with the problems that arise in daily living. They can't handle tough times, and they often use drugs and alcohol to relieve their pain and their anxiety. Uh, They thought that their ways would make them happy, but when things get tough, they find out that it doesn't work or it doesn't last. Look at the lives of many of the rich and the famous Now, in a parallel expression, the psalmist says, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. It's not a second group of of wicked people. It just suggests that wicked people are not comfortable with those who are godly in character and in dedication. In fact, they often feel threatened and intimidated, even though we righteous godly people do not want them to feel that way. You all would welcome anybody in to our gatherings, but they won't come uh, because they think that we're beneath them. They think they don't need God. And only us weak-minded people need God. Obviously, they haven't really come to know how warm and friendly and wonderful you all really are. So then the psalmist comes to the bottom line, and he presents the uh, reader with two alternatives of ultimate seriousness. Verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So you can either be among the righteous, or you can be among the wicked. Those are the only two categories of humans that the psalmist is concerned with, and everybody belongs to one group or the other. But along with these two groups of people, the psalmist warns of two different destinies in this life and at the judgment. If you're righteous, you'll be like a tree. If you're wicked, you'll be like chaff. If you're wicked, your way will end in destruction. If you're righteous, your way will be known and attended and protected by God, even in the glory. For the wicked, you'll be chaff-like and ending in destruction. For the righteous, tree-like and ending in the glorious congregation of the righteous, which includes an eternity in heaven. And then along with these two types of persons and two destinies, he tells us of the essential difference that distinguished the righteous from the wicked. The righteous delight in God's revealed word. They've accepted and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They spend time each day meditating and reading God's word and allowing God's Holy Spirit to direct their lives. The wicked scoff at God's word and they heap scorn on those who follow it and they will never truly be happy in this life or the next. So the conclusion is very clear. Blessed or happy are you who delight in God's word as the influencer of your life rather than joining the wicked, the sinners, or the scoffers. Because if you spend time reading God's word and thinking his thoughts, you will be like a tree and not like chaff. You'll experience God's care forever rather than perish in in judgment. So the blessing, the happiness referred to in verse 1 is a life that is nourished and fruitful. It is a life that is long lasting in the face of drought and a life whose labor is not in vain, but succeeds and prospers in God's good purposes into eternity. That's the blessing of delighting of the word of God and meditating on it day and night. It will make you happy. So what does the psalmist cry out for us to do? Well, delight yourself in the word of God and reflect upon it day and night. That's the main point of the psalm and that's the true pursuit of happiness. But you might ask, how can I come to delight in the word of God? Well, who wouldn't want to delight to read a book, the reading of which would change you from chaff to a redwood tree from a desert and a dust bowl to a lush green orchard. Nobody deep down wants to be chaff. Nobody wants to be rootless and weightless and useless. All of us want to draw some strength for some deep river of reality and become fruitful, happy, blessed people. And you can be when you commit to spending serious time with God each day in his word and talking to him in prayer. Just yesterday... I received a pre-release copy of a book by one of our pastors in a Bible Fellowship Church. The book will be entitled, The Joy Gap. And in it, he tells that for decades, as a pastor, he did all the right things. He preached all the right sermons, but he really had no joy in doing it. He said, and I quote, he writes, My problem is that I was trying to find my joy in something other that than the God who made me. I saw joy in my vacation or some new electronic gadget or an accomplishment, but none of those things could give me lasting joy because I didn't have joy. I couldn't enjoy the good things in my life, end of quote. Until one day, five years ago, when he decided that he would begin his daily prayers seeking to exalt God using the Bible as his guide. And it changed his life. His pursuit of happiness was found within the word of God and everyone has noticed the happiness in his life. He is a happy person to be around. So, what should you do based upon the teaching of this little psalm? Well, first of all, delight yourself in the word of God and not in the things of this world which are all going to burn up someday. Secondly, stand firm on this truth. God's word is truth but also be concerned about from where you're being influenced. It's your choice. You can be influenced by the negativity of the world and you're going to end up just like them in fear, depressed, no hope, and all of that leads to ultimate destruction. Or you can choose to allow God's word to influence your thinking and see how he will transform you into the happy, contented person God created you to be. It's your inalienable right to pursue happiness based on God's word. So go do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this little psalm, for it shows us a picture of what we can be and how we should be. Sometimes we're not. But based upon how much time we spend with you, so may we, with diligence, may we, with regularity, Spend the time in your words so that it infiltrates our minds to the point where we think your thoughts, because that's why you gave us your word. And when we think your thoughts and delight in them, we will be happy, we will be content, because in you we can trust. And we can do this because of all the things that Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Amen.